0: Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I have my friend, Alyssa Olenick on the podcast today, Dr. Alyssa Olenek. So if you have not seen her content, I've shared her content many, many times in my social media, but if you haven't seen her content already, she's an expert in exercise physiology. She specifically specializes in menstrual cycle and and exercise training. So, a very hot topic right now. And that's why I wanted to bring her on because what we're seeing in social media, or what I'm seeing a lot of, is people giving exercise and nutrition prescriptions based on the menstrual cycle. And that's exactly what she studied. Uh, So, thanks for coming to the show today, Alyssa.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here, finally chat with you in a more professional setting. For those of you who are, not unfamiliar with me. I'm going to shamelessly plug Adrian here as healing my gut, my mat, my gut healing journey the past year, you know, balancing my hormones and healing my gut.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So yeah, Alyssa and I worked together professionally. She hired me to work with her for a couple of months on her digestive symptoms. And like <laughs> you said, I it's so funny. I think about that. Like if, if I was one of those charlatans, I would be saying like, oh, I healed you know, quote, unquote, healed your gut when reality was, it's like, we just made some, you know, some basic lifestyle changes.
1: No, no, no. We're healing guts and balancing hormones today. And we're going to learn how to sync with our cycles and boost our metabolism along the way.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. So on that note, so what we want to talk about on the podcast is I want you to give us like your top hacks for how to cycle sync your exercise program. So we know that women, you know, throughout the month, there's massive changes in hormones that, that really affect their exercise program, right? Or their ability to exercise. So what are the top hacks that you have on how to cycle sync your exercise program?
1: Yeah. So as we all know, the given script is that all of exercise science has been done on men, 100% of it. There actually is no studies on women whatsoever. So it's really unfortunate. So we're prescribing information for the average 76 kilogram male to all women. And you know, while men have a circadian rhythm, we have an infrared rhythm, or we can cycle sync with our moon cycles and really align our bodies with the energetic vibes of the universe to make sure that we're maximizing our feminine potential, and especially in exercise training. And so for decades now, women have been training exactly like men, and it's dysregulating their hormones, and they're really moving away from this you know, they're they're calling to be sedentary and only be mothers. And I think that we should really emphasize how we should train, which is really hard for only about five days a month, and maybe in totality, seven days of exercise. And the rest is all about being harmonious with our bodies and making sure we're m- taking care of them appropriately so that we can continue to degrade into metabolic disease as we age, as we are described and destined to do. <laughs>
0: so if you guys didn't catch that, that was complete sarcasm there about some of the dominant messaging that really is going on. If um, you, know, you read
1: I, any caption from a Cycle St. Coaches thing, I guarantee. Like that like little bit about like men have a circadian rhythm and we have an infrared rhythm moon cycle thing. Like I think they all copy and paste the same. It's like an ongoing joke I have in my head. I should do a skit on Instagram about this because it's like I'm like, are you all just copy and pasting each other's captions? Like there's no originality. It's the bad game of telephone.
0: Yeah. And and so if you've heard these types of messages, you know, sometimes they they truly make you feel like, okay, you're so much different than a guy, you have to do everything differently. And there's this, you know, overarching, powerful moon cycle, like you mentioned, that is, that is dictating the way you train. So that's happening too often in terms of messaging. What's, what's the reality? Like is, so what's the reality in terms of training throughout the month for women?
1: So I want to preface that sometimes when I joke, if you don't know me and follow me on Instagram, even if you do, I sometimes use the comic sans font because I have a dry, sarcastic sense of human. People don't pick up on it when I'm making jokes and poking fun of things. And sometimes I poke fun of things that I actually support or think are fine just because of the way that people approach them. So we'll start with unpacking my whole spiel of stuff to start by saying. You know, a lot of people claim that there's no research that's done on women and everything's done on men. And this isn't totally wrong, but it lacks nuance and context. And I want to open that up with this here because, you know, I think it's funny when people try to combat me with my like, they think that I'm anti-cycle thinking that I'm saying there's no differences. Women are making it up. We are just men. And they always are like, well, isn't there's no research done on women? And I'm like, yeah, I'm the second author on the most recent paper that looked at that. Like, I'm (laughs) like, I'm like, you are just trying to zing me with my own publication, right? And I'm not acting like I'm some well-established scientist. I only have like, you know, so many publications, but it's funny because they're like trying to get me with this. And I'm like, yeah, but like, let's what, like, it's, you have to look at what that actually means and what that data actually means. So we published a paper, and it's Cowley et al. 2021 is when we published it. It's called Invisible Sportswoman. And we looked at the totality of about five years worth of data and the prevalence of men versus female studies and total participants. And this built off of another paper, Costello et al., that was published in like 2014. And it showed that over the, yes, over the past like decade or so, the trends in publications and publications in female science on sports-specific topics and health and all that stuff in like five major journals of sport and exercise science and medicine really didn't increase. And it's about 6% of total studies are on just women or women only topics or female only topics with about 34% of total participants being women in these studies. And I think that's really important to, to start this out with because there is research and work being done. Is it what we want it to be? Do we want more? Should it be improved quality? Like, absolutely. But there isn't no research on women. It's not like people act like we are 100% extrapolating from men to women 100% of the time. And that isn't true. And even we're working on a second installment of this paper we just submitted for review, trying to see like looking at author gender and that's relationship to study quality because the big issue with female research is quality and outcomes. And you know we went through and pulled like four or five years worth of papers from these five major journals that were on just only females, like only females, not even mixed men and women. And we had hundreds of papers over the last few years. Like, doesn't that mean that there's maybe more in men? Maybe, but there's not none. So like, I really want to like open up this conversation with people being aware of the fact that like, it's not like this made up reality of like, we are just giving exercise prescriptions to women that are hundred percent based off men. And when we do look at the data in the science, like I like to say, like people are always like, well, women aren't small men, this and that, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yes, women aren't small men, but they aren't a different species, Right we have similar physiological underpinnings between us cuz we're humans we're not comparing the the adaptation of two different like fish in a mammal right and even when we look at like you know a lot of research and stuff even done on like mouse models or rat models or animal models like a lot of the similar adaptations occur when they are endurance trained or muscularly trained so we have to like really think about like what we're talking about here when it's sex differences versus menstrual cycle stuff but You know, at the end of the day, we're not going to find a scientific study that says women don't respond to mechanical tension and hypertrophy isn't mainly driven by that in women. Like, that's not going to be like, we're not going to find that, oh, men and women respond entirely differently to exercise. No, the mechanisms are going to be similar. And I I think people forget that that is very like, that's kind of shown in a lot of things in literature. There are some sex differences in training, performance and adaptations. Absolutely. And those might be a little bit more clear. But when then when we're talking about, I call it like I have like the two buckets of like the sex different stuff, and so nobody is saying that men and women are identical. There are some differences and variations and things that we should consider between the sexes and training and programming. But then in its own bucket is the influences of hormones, and this is menstrual cycle, you know, premenopause, perimenopause, postmenopause, pregnancy, postpartum, birth control use. Like there are so many different hormonal, different things that can impact training performance and re- recovery. But that's its own separate bucket within females and women. And so when we talk about this and I say like there isn't a ton of data to back what people are saying, people interpret saying the cycle isn't as impactful as we think as me saying women are the same as men and we should train exactly the same and we're no different. No, we're talking about phase to phase, not not sex to sex. Right. So there one there is data. Let's start the conversation out with that. Do we want more? Yes. Do we want more quality? Yes. Do we need to stop nitpicking every single paper that is published on women because it's not made up to our invisible standard of people who've never actually conducted science on this because we're mad that it's not 100% answering the question that applies to us uniquely? Yes. You're creating more barriers to this work. You're making it harder to get things published, accessible, interpreted, applied. Like, don't make this harder than it is. It's already hard enough to do what it is, but it is out there. But you have to just take a nuanced lens of looking at what this data is and also comparing it to like, yes, outcomes of males. But, you know, when we're talking about the hormone stuff, not thinking that non-concrete answers in regards to this means that we are 100 percent like men, but also we are not a different species. And so what we're going to see most likely, you know, that we do see or we're going to see is that it's going to be small manipulations and training that will account for some of the physiological differences between males and women. Um, rather than maybe these overarching like dramatic changes across the month in response to hormones with our cycles. So that's kind of my like, disclaimer disclaim our preface, but to give context, because I know that when people come in here, this is the things that they've heard, right? That there's no data on this, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And I really encourage you to ask yourself, like, would we just program and train men based off at best guesses hypotheses? No. So why should we do that? women deserve better than that, right? And even if the, the science is lagging of what we want it to be, we can still apply that to people like good coaches and practitioners should be able to take what we do have and what's out there and what we do know. And, you know, apply that to the human, just like nutrition is everything could be textbook and it might not work for a person. You're still going to have to work with that individual. And like, that's kind of where things are going now. So again, that's like my little preface rant, but When we are looking at the menstrual cycle stuff, which is really, really trendy right now, and I know that's what I'm here to talk about today, it's that, you know, so we have our menstrual cycle. And so now we're zooming into the bucket of just the female fizz stuff. We're not looking at sex different stuff. Let's back up really quickly
0: before we get into the menstrual cycle stuff, because I want to talk about the research aspect of things just to put it into context for people, because a lot of people think, oh, no research is done in women. And it's like, that's a malicious thing let's talk about why that's the case. Like why why would you exclude topic. women from your research if you're doing, if you're an exercise physiologist?
1: Yeah. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with me, I have included women or done studies on, actually I've done like either mixed sex or female only studies for every single research study that I've ever done, which is unheard of. I didn't even know there were these these barriers to exercise research testing until I kind of really got into it because it was just what I was exposed to early, which is incredible, right? So I've always done female metabolism stuff throughout my entire training and research career. And there's a few things. So one, I will call this out. I think a lot of this is lazy. I think researchers are lazy, but I understand why they're not doing it. So there's a few reasons this isn't happening. One, hormones are complicated. And the reason that the data is so unclear at this point in time too, is even with the best controlled studies, hormones are complicated. Cycles are not the same person to person or even month to month. And, you know, tracking and monitoring these things to just statistically control for them or make sure that they're in the correct phase or they're, you're accurately representing a phase in a training study or an intervention or any sort of assessment is going to be hard. It requires more steps, more measures, more burden on the participant. Well, I will say female participants are generally, in my experience, really fucking awesome about just doing the thing. They, I mean, amazing. Um, not saying that my male participants aren't, but I think that that That's a perception that women aren't willing to contribute to their own science. And I've found that female participants are really awesome and willing to do that just for the betterment of their peers. But all of those steps are time on the researchers, burden on the participant, which in research, you try to reduce the burden on participants as much as possible to answer your question. It adds variability. More statistical control is needed. More control in general is needed to do this. Um, But it also costs money. Mm. And research and science cost money. And in general, female physiology isn't super funded. There is some emphasis that's in the NIH, but in general, a lot of the funding is going to go towards disease mechanisms rather than performance. The NIH doesn't give a shit of how your exercise performance. It cares that you don't get metabolic disease. So, you know, you're trying to get funding from small buckets of funding that aren't going to be, you know, super high amounts of money, little pockets of money here and there. And I did a PhD where like we were balling on a budget. I did my dissertation on a couple grand that I got from like some grants from the graduate school and stuff like that. And you can do it a lot with a little and that's what a lot of these schools are doing. But you have to understand that like there are more steps and people this is why I'm like when people in my comments get really critical of studies that I'm like, wow, this is actually like really awesome that they did this. I'm like, it's fine to have criticism and ask questions and be engaging. But like if you're not going to take this data as being good enough, then like you're never going to have data that's good enough because like this work is hard to do. And so there's a lot of barriers of people who are just you know, you have a lot of graduate students who are doing stuff like this, who just don't have the time before they graduate to re- to control for this. Because when you think about it, if you're doing something in a man and it's four weeks in a row, you can study them four weeks in a row. You can do four testing sessions in a row, boom, 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 get them done in a month. But if you're controlling for cycle phase in a study with women, and you decide you're only going to test them. Like a really easy thing in research is to do the onset of menstruation because it's like It costs $0 and you know where they're at in their cycle. So three Mm -hmm. to five days after the onset of menstruation within that window, you test them. There's not that rise in estrogen yet. That's pretty common. But if you're doing something that's multiple testing sessions and you can't get them in within the same week, you're waiting another month. Or if it's multiple sessions, two months, things like that. And so that can make it harder, right? Time, that extends your timeline. It takes two to four times or how many measures you're taking longer to study women than it does men. And it's logistically harder, but I do think that some people get lazy about it. And then there's the issue of, if you're looking at cycle phase differences, so like early follicular, late follicular, ovulatory, early luteal, mid luteal, late luteal, like you really can split the phases into that many phases. Uh, You're going to have to, one, do either training journals or cycle journals with participants for multiple months leading into the study to see if their cycles are normal. You're gonna have to make sure that they have a normal cycle. You are going to have to test for ovulation because a lot of women can have a cycle and be anovulatory or not have ovulation. Or you're testing for ovulation for that true marker of when that that surge in hormones happens around ovulation to mark the split between the follicular and luteal phases so you can make sure that you're scheduling sessions appropriately in response to this. You're also probably going to be having to take blood draws to do assays to confirm hormone concentrations, either with urine or blood, whatever it is that you're taking in order to confirm that they were in those phases, or control for that in statistical analysis in the study, so there's all of these things where if I want to test men, guess what? They show up to the lab. Yep. Maybe they're fasted. That, <laughs> like- that's
0: the that's the important thing. I, you went through it, and I think you clearly outlined all of the barriers. And it's not that it's not the, you know coming from a malicious intent. Oftentimes, it's just you have ten thousand dollars to run a study. You have to show an outcome. Do you include women and try to make it work with all those barriers? Or do you just go ahead and say, let's just do it in men and get the study done? And as you mentioned, it's a lot of grad students and other individuals who don't have, they're not heavily invested in, into really getting into the weeds on this on these topics. And so they're just trying to get a study done, trying to get a paper published, trying to get some data and move on. So that, you clearly outlined that. Now I wanna discuss um, kind of the cycle. You mentioned you broke it down into the various phases. So I wanna discuss like, why that's important? Why do we have to try to control for that? What are the various things that tend to happen in women's bodies throughout these different phases that researchers are trying to control for that they they don't want to influence the, the research?
1: Yeah. So I will say if you're a researcher or scientist listening to this, I'd rather you include women and it be imperfect in how you included them than not include them at all, right? Like we need to lower that barrier to increase people in it. And also like, take studies with a, like a lens of the methods, but also like, again, I'm encouraging people to not be dismissive of everything, but also learn how to critically evaluate research or just listen to people who know how to do it. So carry on. But when it comes to this, this is where I think this is really important. And I think a lot of the the nuance of the menstrual cycle gets lost in social media is that they're, we're lumping things into like two buckets, maybe four at most. and it And it kind of, I think like the, in general, the one who gets The most hurt by this is the luteal phase, which just gets lumped into like a 14 day window of doom. And it's not just it's not captured like you're not in the same physiological state for that entire 14 days. Right. And so, you know, when you go through the menstrual cycle, you know, you have the the beginning of your cycle starts with the onset of menstruation, getting your period. That's day one. Um, your hormones are actually at the lowest here, so your hormones are like at their lowest because that's why that triggers the shutting of your uterine lining, and that is why you're having your period. So it's you know it's kind of counterintuitive that your hormones are at the lowest, and that's when you're on your period. So most of your hormones, your peak hormonal stuff, is in that like week before that late luteal phase, and we'll get to that in a second. And so. Some people like to say that we're most like men here. Physiologically, we're nothing like men at any point in time. So I don't like to say that. I just like to say that your hormones are at the lowest. And, you know, a lot of people will also say that your performance is better here because of this. And it may be and that may be true, right, for many people. But also that also may not be true at all, depending on some other stuff we can get to in a second. So you know, you go through your menstrual phase, which is about three to seven days of bleeding, maybe up to 10, depending on the person. I'm not going to get into my menstrual cycle irregularities, also because that kind of gets out of my scope. So talk to someone who's more trained in gynecological sciences with that. Mm-hmm. But when you're, then your hormones start to rise, and it's predominantly estrogen rising at this point in time. So estrogen gets a lot of positive rep. It's, we love it. It's great. Estrogen is kind of our superpower hormone, or estrogen is great for us. This rise in estrogen is leading up to ovulation. So you have a high hormone phase, but it's it's dictated by a high estrogen phase. So progesterone's not high during this time. You're more estrogen dominant. I don't like not in the sense of estrogen dominance, but like that's your predominant acting hormone during this time leading up to ovulation. So you have early follicular or the menstruation phase. You have Late follicular, which is this rising estrogen up into ovulation, you have the ovulation window, which is about like a small three to five day window, but you have like a peak of hormones within that. And then you go into the luteal phase after that. And so in general, your cycle length will be more so dictated by how long you're in the follicular phase. That tends to be more variable where the luteal phase is probably going to be similar month to month to you in about that 14 day window, give or take, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can kind of then once you leave ovulation, your estrogen peaks and then your hormones kind of drop again. You kind of have a steady rise in estrogen and progesterone. So your hormones kind of go down back lower, maybe. I don't I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but probably somewhere to like what they were that mid mid follicular phase. They drop back down, but progesterone starting to be a little bit more predominant during this phase. So Then over the course of that next week, your hormones slowly build and they peak to this mid-luteal phase, which is the high hormone phase of the menstrual cycle, where progesterone is higher than estrogen, but both progesterone and estrogen are currently higher or elevated in your body. And then the next seven days, you have a slow steady decline of those hormones into the next menstrual phase. And that last little bit of it, those last few days is that late luteal phase. Then you go right back into your next menstrual phase. So that's kind of the general fluctuations of hormones there um, with in regards to estrogen and progesterone, which is most of what people are talking about. Some people really like to tout that there is a small bump in testosterone around ovulation, which isn't necessarily false. But in general, women actually have like higher testosterone values and they necessarily have estrogen values. It's just not similar to that of men. So we kind of have that always predominantly available. But in general, estrogen is kind of our more superpower human when it comes to exercise, muscle recovery and oxidative capacity and things like that anyway. So again just changing that narrative a little bit to like when you're more like men things are better for you but it's not necessarily true we our hormones do have really positive effects and especially for muscle building and muscle health and things like that and we see that especially denoted in like when you lose estrogen in that menopausal period that's when things go more haywire so like i want to just make sure that people are focusing on the fact that like i, I feel like social media sometimes pushes this narrative that your hormones are like bad. And anytime your hormones are elevated or high, it's harmful or bad or not good for you. And and that's not necessarily true. Our hormones do a lot of important things for us. So that's the cycle. And the reason I want to break it down into like those five kind of sections rather than just two or maybe the four that people put it in is that, you you know, it, it gives you a little bit more of an understanding because it's like social media calls it the menstrual follicular ovulation luteal and they bucket luteal all into one. And they forget that the menstrual phase is also the follicular phase at the same period, like same time. Like it's obviously separated into components, but it, it is the follicular phase. It's not like it's the menstrual window within that. And so when we think about our training across the menstrual cycle, the thing that people don't really like when I talk about this is they assume that my stance is that it doesn't affect anything. Nothing changes. It's all made up. It's fake. And I'm like, you are not listening to a word that I'm saying. And I find it really interesting because I'll share a piece of content on social media and the reshares that I get in the p- captions people put at the top shows their bias going into this because I will get like 50% of people will be like, ha, see, told you, no differences. Stop changing your t- cycle. Cycle thinking's made up, blah, blah, blah. And you get other people who are like, I've been learning more about this and here's a little bit of information on this. Like, you know, make it apply to yourself. Like the more nuanced take of it. And I, then I get, like, psycho coaches who think that I'm, like, promoting supporting, and supporting them. their training. I, that's the one that really throws me off. I'm like, how do you think that we are on the same? I just, I just, I, I'm almost on a block me at this point. That's fine. Um,
0: it's but... what happens when you, when, when you create nuance, oftentimes people interpret it in the way that they want to, as opposed to what you're yes. actually saying.
1: Yes. And so I want to make it really clear right here, right now. I do not think that if you have differences, fluctuations, or impacts that you're making it up, your experience is valid, but a lot of women experience no impact, and that's also incredibly valid, and also, if your experience mimics a lot of the social media cycle syncing stuff... That is valid, but not every woman's experience perfectly fits that little mold. So while maybe like a quarter, I'm making that up off of my top of my head, of women are like, yes, this. why wouldn't this make sense? This is exactly my experience, totally lines up. I'm like, yes, because that, it's gonna, like if the shoe's gonna fit for so many people, right? And we can explain too why you might feel better when you're cycle syncing versus not as well. But that doesn't mean that it neglects a lot of different, because we have to remember, not everyone has a 28-day cycle. Not everybody has the same hormonal fluctuations. We have different menstrual cycle conditions like PMS, PMDD, endometriosis, PCOS. We also have individuals who have normal cycles who are having different levels of hormones, which is going to have different impacts on the things. And, and so when I say that there's no data to back cycle syncing, the, the conclusion isn't that it's made up. The conclusion is that commercial wellness woo-woo cycle syncing information lacks nuance and is applying hypothesis and detraining you and undertraining you and using scare tactics to manipulate you into thinking that you're a special, fragile unicorn who can't do anything. Instead of, hey, this is highly individualized. And while there might be impacts on hormones, some trends are more clear and we can give prescription and advice on where other things are maybe not as concrete and your physiological outcomes might not be that different. And you probably can perform well across the entire month. However, your individual experience will dictate your outcomes. Like that nuanced statement is not sexy, right? It's not.
0: You're um, never going to win anybody over with that statement. Over, hey, have you? Are are you not getting the results you want? It's because you're not cycle syncing your exercise
1: program. Or, Do this to improve your cycle training instead of like. And I did. Like, if you guys want, we could talk a little bit about this here. But I did just make a video on. It's on my YouTube or my podcast called A Better Way to Cycle Sync because this is maybe my ninth or tenth podcast on this topic. And I have been saying the same things over and over, which is fine. That's what you do in podcast interviews, but I wanted to put in one place like all of my general guidance and advice summarized so people don't have to listen to 10 hours of podcasts to get that. And I condensed it into like A Better Way to Cycle Sync, which is like, here's my advice on how to approach these different phases and these fluctuations. So that way you can work with your physiology, not against it, but also so you can figure out like, what actually is the missing link for you? Because for so many women, it's not that you're not working with your hormones. And this is your cup of tea. It's that you're not eating appropriately. Like, I have such a nutrition forward approach with all of this. Like, I really think that, you know, it's not going to be 100% fix all. There's gonna be times where sometimes people's hormones just, they feel like shit and that's fine, yeah. right? Or they perform worse and that's fine. But a lot of this stuff, I think, can be combated with a nutrition forward approach with pre-intra-post-nutrition, general daily nutrition, overall diet quality and composition, while also learning to like manage your symptoms and how you feel and how that's going to impact your intensity and volume and what you're doing in the gym, while also recognizing that there's a big psychological component mixed in with this as well. So it's not as simple and cut dry as, hey, you're better and stronger in your late follicular and ovulatory phases, so only strength and hit right now And then only do gentle, slow tempo weightlifting in your luteal phase until you get to that last week in your menstrual week and only do plies and walk. Like that is not good exercise training advice. It's leaving women under train. It's leaving them with inadequate muscle loading, not improving bone density, not improving metabolic health outcomes. And when we think about things that are really huge risks for hormonal health, metabolic health, um, you know, balancing your hormones isn't just balancing progesterone and estrogen. It's also insulin, glucose, fatty acids, all of these things, which exercise plays huge roles in. And so I, I, I really push back on this stuff because I think it's not actually improving people's health. But let's dive into like something that I actually recommend because I can rant all day, but nobody actually cares about learning. They want to know what to do for themselves. And so.
0: Um, so, so let's get a, a summary of, of what you put into that video. And I also, because you've alluded to it and because I always get questions about it, I do want to talk briefly about the menopausal period as well.
1: Yeah, we can absolutely do that. And so my priority of hierarchy when it comes to female training, and this applies to you if you're on birth control, this applies to you if you're pregnant, postpartum or menopausal, this applies to you if you're in whatever phase of your menstrual cycle for females in general, is going to start, it's a pyramid. And I love it because I made this like menstrual cycle prioritization pyramid on an Instagram graphic a few years ago. And then like two months later, a paper came out that almost was exactly the same thing. And I was like, I love what my bias is, Evidence based and correct, because it was just like what I derived based on reading the paper. But there is a great figure that came out on this, and and it really is just this pyramid of prioritization. And at the very bottom of this is like adequate macronutrient composition, hydration, and like sleep stress management, those types of things. Like, I do not think people realize how much being well fed and being fed appropriately, being hydrated, managing your stress, not sleeping like terribly as best as you can. I know a lot of people struggle with sleep and I'm not invalidating that experience for you. Impacts so much of your performance outcomes, your training outcomes, your adaptation, your hormonal health, and your like overall metabolic health. Like a lot of these things that we're worried about when it comes to hormones, cycle training, phases across the lifespan, really get like a lot of it gets addressed with just your basics. Now, basics are simple, but they're not easy. I know Adrian talks about this stuff all the time, but like you know, eating a really well-balanced diet that prioritizes at least moderate protein and then appropriate carbohydrate intake for your activity levels. And then, you know, fats kind of fall within there. And I don't think anyone in America has trouble eating fats, even though we don't talk about that a lot. That's probably another rant for you for another day. Everyone's fearing carbs but everyone's overeating fats and they don't even yep. know it. <laughs> um, but just having like an appropriate intake of food, because for so many women, especially athletic women and This is even more prevalent in like lean athletic women are under eating and they don't realize that that is the main driver of their issue. But even if, you know, you're overweight or have struggled with your weight or it doesn't matter your body composition size, even if you're eating technically too much, it can still be irregular and it's not making things easier for you. So finding like a really healthy, balanced approach to eating. And I'm sure Adrian has so much content on that. Like I know that he talks about this. So like refer back to his stuff. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, let's look at your micronutrient composition. Like, are you actually getting in vitamins and minerals? Because some of the stuff that's coming out for menstrual cycle, like dysregulation or irregularities, or you know, for your perception, and your performance, is just changes in micronutrients across the month. Like, you have lower magnesium, or your iron's lower, or you know, supplementing with certain things might help you stabilize or balance whatever you want to call those levels, which can help mitigate some of the symptoms that you're having. You might just have nutrient fluctuations or deficiencies across the month. But if you're eating a well-rounded micronutrient-dense diet and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I know Adrian's on the same page of this, like testing, not guessing. Like I've done blood work. Adrian's looked at my blood work. I told him what I was supplementing with, like when I worked with him. But I wasn't just random guessing things that I was taking. I was seeing how these things were impacted by me to make sure that I was doing that appropriately. To, now this was for like my other stuff, but the same thing applies for that, like if you have, and a lot of women have nutrient deficiencies and things like magnesium and calcium and iron and stuff like that, that might be impacting not only your cycle symptoms, but your performance and your recovery and your outcomes and your health associated with that. Nutrient deficiencies are a huge issue in female athletes for many reasons, whether that's due to under eating or just loss of blood with a menstrual cycle, fluctuations of hormones, things like that. So making sure that you're getting micronutrients in your diet, filling gaps if you need to supplement appropriately again. Like, I'm not just going to give you a list of supplements to take right here. I think that that's irresponsible. But, um, you know, seeing where your gaps may lie and what you need to help with, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to supplement for everything. It might just be improving your dietary composition will help do that. And so from there, the next step is, are you, this is a big one, ladies. Are you following a good, well-programmed, consistent, progressive, exercise training program or are you haphazardly doing random things that are unpredictable at high volumes and high intensities while under eating concurrently not managing stress not sleeping well and then blaming everything on your cortisol
0: (laughs) i think you just covered a large portion. i knew that was coming i i truly knew that that was the next the next break in the in the pyramid because that's just what it is i mean when you talk about the basics the basics are fueling yourself appropri- nourishing your body with the right food, you know, stress management, sleep, and then training appropriately. Um and unfortunately, and I'm confident that this is the case for many people listening to this podcast right now, um too many people are just like what you said, just doing random exercises, you know, maybe doing a little bit of running here and there or look, you know, jumping into a uh orange theory class or Barry's bootcamp or whatever the case may be and it's not a as Alyssa mentioned, like a progressive exercise program, it's going to help you build skills, going to help you build muscle, it's going to help you build, you know, foundational, healthy muscle tissue and things that you need to to live a healthy life. And it's it's so important. And same thing with nutrition, I talk about the importance of getting the right information and doing the right things with nutrition. It's the same thing with exercise. And now exercise Anything is better than nothing. So I don't want to discourage anyone from like doing what you're doing. Anything is better than nothing. But if you're truly trying to get, you know, results from, if you're trying to get the most out of your effort, if and you're putting in effort, you're exercising, you know, an hour, four or five days a week, which a lot of people are doing, having a well-programmed exercise program versus just doing anything will change your life like will truly change your life if you are doing a couple of days of really good resistance training like three days a week or something like that a full body resistance training as opposed to popping into an orange theory every once in a while like it will it won't happen at first (laughs) you know it takes time and that's the challenge with exercise training is you know you go in you lift some weight and you're sore but you don't look any different and and you know it just takes time but after a year of just Being well-programmed and and having a well-balanced exercise routine that complements your nutrition, it's life-changing.
1: Yeah, and I do want to acknowledge here that I recognize that like, you know, for a lot of females, the messages that they've been fed their whole life for a lot of the reasons that they're doing the things that they're doing or they're training how they're doing or there are barriers and obstacles of not feeling comfortable in gym, not feeling confident and you have kids, you don't know what to do you really like that group fitness atmosphere. So again, like Adrian said, I don't wanna deter you from doing anything. Like, If you are doing something and it's the only way that you'll move and be active and that's it and you enjoy it and you're healthy and you're getting in the exercise guidelines, that's fine. But then you just stop here in the pyramid. You probably don't need to individualize anything to your hormone because you're not gonna really know how they're impacting things. And then if you just feel crummy one day, then you just pull back or take a rest day or whatever it is. Like you're just gonna, and that's fine. Like if that's that's how you move and that's what you're doing with your life, I don't care. Like if you're just, I I would love to see you do progressive specific strength training, but the rest of it, I don't really care what you do if you don't have specific goals that you're just getting moving. Like you don't have to do a specific amount of zone two minutes or avoid hit because it's bad for you. Maybe don't make every single workout six days a week, bury the bootcamp or Orange Theory Fitness or whatever it is. Maybe find a variation or do these classes or programs maybe more consistently so that you are getting their built-in fluctuations in intensity volume training specificity, but then you're just going to listen to your body and adjust as needed and use the RPE that I'm about to talk about here in a second. So from here, you know, this the reason I really emphasize this is, one, women are very detrained and they're doing a lot of this like weird, not really strength kind of cardio, but not really cardio training, which again is fine, but then you're frustrated because you're not getting these results that you're looking for in body composition changes or... Whatever it is that you're doing, because you're kind of spinning two wheels at the same time, but they're two small wheels and they're kind of not really lining up with each other. And you're not really doing anything that's going to move things forward. So I really do encourage you all to find like two to three days of strength training that's progressive and similar week to week for the most part, if you can. And again, there's some exceptions to this rules because if you're doing something like a well programmed CrossFit gym that has that built in, it's probably fine if you're consistently doing it. But like, I I think people, because there is that trend for that constant variation, I'm not anti that, but you need to find like a lot of those good programming still have consistency within them. You might not realize it, but they are programming consistently, even though you're changing things kind of. So finding a way to get strength training in progressively is huge, but Keeping things similar enough, and this doesn't mean you have to be a robot every day for the rest of your life, but enough that then when you track your cycle, your individual cycle, which I encourage people to do for at least three to six months, monitor trends, check in on yourself, see how you feel, right? You'll be able to tell oh, okay, like, you know, I'm eating pretty good. I'm pretty spot on with this. My training's been consistent, but you know, I consistently just feel really shitty the day before my period. And you kind of know when your period's about to hit every month, you know when it's coming. Then you can notice trends within yourself, right? Your late luteal phase might be really terrible for you or your early menstrual phase might be terrible for you. But some women feel like shit during ovulation. That's something that's not talked about enough, I think, when it comes to the cycle stuff is you might feel bad in the middle of the month, right? Your luteal phase might be fine. Your luteal phase might be terrible. Or your hormones month to month, cycle to cycle might change, but then you can have the skills of tuning in with your body and knowing when things feel a little bit off without beating yourself up and just take a note of it and go, okay, that's information. Don't judge yourself for it. But just accrue data and skills of knowing how to listen to your body, right? And then from there, you might be able to actually understand, okay, well, this is how my cycle is or is not impacting me. This is when I feel great. This is when I don't feel best. And then from there, you can approach or do this with your clients, right? Like then some of the cliche cookie cutter advice that's out there isn't all terrible. Some of it's really terrible, but some of those approaches might be good for you to do. And like, I'm not against that when we haven't, we're informed on the decisions that we're making in our training, right? And so when it comes to this, like my next part in the pyramid is then like nutrition forward approaches and using nutrition as a tool to you see if we can then improve those symptoms or performance outcomes that are being impacted with nutrition before we go to like changing the whole program app. Like, let's see, OK, like we're more you were more likely to need more carbs to to improve glycogen storage in the follicular phase. So maybe if your training's feeling run down and you tend to restrict carbs you might want to bump them up during this time because that might help your performance because you're more glycolytic, estrogens. Even though estrogen is like more of a fat-using hormone, it does increase carbohydrate usage as well. So I think that can be confusing for people. I even know when I was writing my dissertation, I was like, it does both, but it's different. So during that follicular phase, like if you're feeling run down, your recovery's poor, Ironically, there's like actually a little bit more of like an inflammatory response sometimes reported in the literature during this follicular phase, but no one talks about it because it's like, well, performance is better. Muscle gain might be better. And maybe, um, maybe, but there is potentially recovery impacts here. And one of the big things that I love is increasing carbohydrate during this phase because that might help with that. And then if you are feeling really good, like if you know that you feel better during this phase, there is some early data it's not the best, but it's there. That suggests that maybe you know hypertrophy and strength might be improved during the phase. It's really mixed. I'm not like I, I, the mechanisms behind it. It's because it's driven by the estrogen's predominance here. But my my advice for that is simply if you feel better or you feel good, just push the weight or the volume, and <laughs> it accounts yeah. for it. So like I'm really big on auto regulation, and we'll talk about that here in a second, which will indirectly do that for you, right? So if you're feeling good. You don't need to not push because you don't need to cycle sync, but you can push here if you would like to and you and you and you know you feel good here. But otherwise, if you if you feel like your performance is being impacted during this phase at all, like really look at your carbohydrate nutrition and making sure that you're eating enough for your activity levels. And when I talk about carbs, I'm always like strict carb sources, like increasing your actual carb intake, not just like random foods that have carbs in them. Like I'm talking about like your grains, your rices, your cereals, your fruits, things like that. Like, again, I think you know this, people confuse mixed macro things for being carb. And I don't think people realize how hard it is to get in a lot of strict carb to match performance activity, depending on how active you are. And so that's usually my recommendation for that follicular phase in your menstrual cycle. Part of that, if you are feeling run down from training, again, that might be something where nutrition, like focused on nutrient deficiencies might improve some of that, especially Mm -hmm. like leading up from your luteal phase into that. But again, that's going to be listening to your body, feeling your symptoms, but knowing that exercise might reduce some of those symptoms that occur during that phase, even though it's hard to get yourself moving, it actually might reduce some of the symptoms and that you're, you know, depending on the extremeness of your your menstrual cycle symptoms, You know, some people, they have debilitating symptoms. And I think people who are like, you're going to perform the best, go after it, blah, 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 are really dismissing that. That is valid. If you need to take a day off or two because your symptoms are really hard, one, I think you should work with someone to address that and see if there's something that you can do to reduce that. But two, like, that's okay if you know that you need to take a day off the gym, the first day of your menstrual cycle every month. Like, cycle syncing isn't taking a day or two off. That's just... Auto-regulation and working with your body and not judging yourself for physiological fluctuations, right? So that's my general advice for that follicular phase through kind of ovulation, but ovulation doesn't really get a bad rap. But if you feel like crap during ovulation, again, bump up carb intake and or adjust your training intensity or volume according to how you feel. The luteal phase, we know, gets a ton of slack and crap. And I'm like, I'm here to save the luteal phase, I feel like. So that early luteal phase, you're probably not gonna really notice a ton different in your training coming off of the follicular phase. It's probably not gonna feel that different. It's when you get into about a week later in that high hormone phase and then that lowering of your hormones into the menstrual cycle where people start to note more symptoms. So because progesterone is more predominant during this phase, we do have potential implications for our performance and training that again, I have nutrition advice to give. So things that are a little bit more denoted that are a little bit more like, yeah, this is probably impacting things is that your sleep might be impacted by progesterone fluctuations and changes. This is one of the reasons also like perimenopause has fluctuations and changes. And, you know, your sleep is also impacted during that phase as well because you're just, you know, it's a little bit different. So you might have poor sleep or poor quality sleep. So I'm a really big proponent of like if you're going to practice good sleep hygiene or emphasizing that, like really taking care of yourself in this phase, like doing that bedtime routine, doing what you need to do to wind down, improving your sleep. There's some early data to suggest that supplementing with stuff like tart cherry juice to improve sleep quality and onset. But also that might help with some of the recovery stuff I'm going to talk about here in a second. So there's some new data coming out on that as well. So that's one of the supplements that I'm like, it probably doesn't hurt to take during this phase that it's not like you don't need to get blood work to take it. It might have some anti-inflammatory properties and improve your sleep. And it's just like fruit juice. So There's it's a little not bit of
0: like... evidence for, um, for muscle recovery for tart cherry juice too.
1: Yes. And so that's exactly why I recommend this here too, because one of the things that might be impacted because of this progesterone level being increased as well is there might be slightly poor recovery during this phase because of this. And this is probably very dependent on your own hormonal profile, I would assume based off like kind of what's the trend in the literature and like suggesting to control for hormonal things. But there is potentially poor recovery during this time just because progesterone is more of a catabolic hormone, so that's breaking down where estrogen is more anabolic, so that's building up. And so one of the things that I, that's why I like the suggestion of tart cherry juice, because it's really an easy kind of harmless thing to take that just might improve your recovery and your responses and your sleep and things like that with this phase. Something that's also been suggested in the literature as well is to slightly increase your protein intake during this phase. And honestly, the difference is maybe like 10 grams. It's not Mm -hmm. a lot. But if you're eating high protein across the entire month, which I suggest you do, you probably don't need to worry about this. But if you're someone who slacks on it, this might, or you feel more impairments in your recovery, this might be a time to supplement. And I encourage like, you know, the anabolic window is pretty broad, but especially during this phase, if you have impacts in your recovery or you're worried about your muscle recovery or gains, like it might be advantageous to take a shake or a protein supplement right after the gym or your training sessions during this phase, or just getting your meal in a little bit closer with complete amino acids, things like that. Just, it it doesn't hurt to do that, right? Like those things aren't bad, even if they aren't necessary. Like again, your total daily intake is going to matter more, but that timing piece, and also like having amino acids in your bloodstream while you're training. Like we're not training fasted. We have some amino acids in our bloodstream so that they're available for energy metabolism. So we're not breaking down muscle to get them. If you're training early in the morning, some people suggest BCAAs, and I just think that that's a waste of money. Like if you're training in the morning and you really hate training fasted or you have a hard time getting complete food in, like get in some carbs and maybe supplement with like some EAAs. So you just have them in your bloodstream. There's a little bit more data to use for the use of essential amino acids. I don't think they should replace your protein supplements or your protein shakes. People always want to do that. And I'm like, one, that's really expensive. And two, it's not exactly the same. Um, But that might be something to, you know, do that with some easy digesting carbs in the morning, keep it in your water bottle in the gym, things like that, just so they're available to you in your bloodstream so you're not totally kind of protein depleted and you have that in your body while you're, so they're available in your bloodstream, right? Um, And those are two things that might help with that muscle recovery and performance. The next is going to be increasing your calorie intake slightly. So there's some data to show that the, the increase in metabolism during the luteal phase is probably between 2 and 12%. And so that seems like it might be high. It's a pretty big variation. It's probably 50 to maybe 120 calories a day, maybe upward to two to 300 and people who are maybe like really active and they have a large caloric need and things like that. So when people talk about this, like it's not like you need to start gorging yourself in your luteal phase, but I don't think people realize how much small gaps in energy deficits can one, actually result in long-term weight gain, that's another topic for another point in time, but like can impact your recovery or your perception of your hunger or nutrient availability when you're training. Like if you're in a maintenance level of calories and you're in a 150 to 200 calorie deficit and you don't know it, like yes, you're gonna feel like shit when you're training, right? Especially if you're already in a deficit and then you're in an unintentional more deficit, You're going to not feel great. You're not going to recover as well. You're not going to have nutrients available. So increasing your calorie intake slightly and or if you are dieting and you feel like hunger is a big issue for you, just eat at maintenance for this week. Like take a diet break during this phase. I know that might extend diet periods for people who are in deficits, but it might increase your adherence because you're not fighting with That physiological fluctuation for you, but also not feeling like if you bump up a little bit more that you're necessarily going to automatically put on a ton of weight or anything like that. So bumping up your calories slightly and seeing how that feels for you. And while fat oxidation is more predominant in this phase across the day, which might be a reason why you're craving chocolate or fat or things like that, I do want to emphasize because you might have slight changes in your insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism. And while this the state is kind of messy. It's probably more true for those who have more adiposity or more sedentary. But, you know, glucose is way more controlled in div-lean people. That just kind of is across the board. But having a carbohydrate snack feeding meal prior to the gym or intra workout, especially for my endurance friends who are doing 60 to 90 minutes or longer of activity, it's probably smart, especially when you're capitalizing on that glucose uptake of exercise. You're not relying on insulin during this period of time. So prioritizing pre and intracarbohydrate intake during these things. And I think people underestimate how much pre and intracarbohydrate availability and having that in your system also decreases like your muscle breakdown and need of recovery during exercise training, especially if you're doing long endurance stuff, like your recovery will be really much more improved if you have carbohydrate available to you during that time. You're not pulling from your glycogen stores and forcing your muscles to work harder and things like that. So timing that carbohydrate there. And then the last thing is going to be you will have some alterations in thermoregulation and or your ability to like manage heat, sweat rate, things like that. So making sure that you're supplementing with things like electrolytes and or there is some data that suggests like, because you are having this thermoregulation and or the fluctuations in your hormones, things like potassium and magnesium might also be fluctuating and altering this. So a lot of electrolyte supplements have sodium, potassium, magnesium within them. So you could probably just like, I use Liquid IV, you know, people like Element. I just, there's a million out there. It doesn't really matter. You could also just eat a potato with salt and probably call it a day. That's my that's one of my personal favorites. But that might be something, especially if you're doing exercise in the heat or long duration activity, supplementing back with that to help that or using cooling strategies during exercise mm-hmm. just to help with regulation of that. And so it, it's, again, like the luteal phase does have changes and fluctuations. People act like I'm saying I'm not, but those are things right then and there that can improve these things. And again, if you're eating pretty well-balanced, healthy across the month. You might not have like these big changes in your diet. I'm not telling you to 100% change your nutrition across the month. But keeping note of like how little things, like I have a lot of people on social media who say, I just increased my carb intake a little bit in my luteal phase and all my symptoms and performance issues went away. And it can be that simple. I'm not saying it is for everyone, but it can be that simple. And then- Going into that late luteal phase is where when we look at the actual literature and when performance and exercise is impacted, it's that late luteal phase or that early menstrual cycle phase. So like those few days going into your period or those few days of your period. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. That's when you have a lot of PMS symptoms. That's when the hormones are crashing and falling. You know, you, you have the onset of the menstrual cycle and the things that come along with that. So we're looking at a short window here of like a few days, maybe half a week where people are experienced. Now, some people might experience... Larger symptoms, right? I call this the why am I crying in the grocery store parking lot period. And then, you know, the next day, like you got your period and you're like, oh, that's why I cried in the Kroger parking lot yesterday. But, you know, keeping awareness of this. And so when it comes to training as a whole, I I really like using auto regulation for like 99.9% of people here because unless you're an elite athlete who has your life 100% controlled, everything else is going to patch your performance as much as your hormones are. I think people think that hormones are like this dominating wave of everything. And your sleep, your stress, your kids, your job, like all of these things, like this little rant isn't me telling you to like start robotically controlling your life, but just try to have some sense of like routine and normalcy within that. But recognizing that your hormones aren't going to somehow overcome changes in performance that are more than sleep, adequate nutrition, stress management, being like adequately nutriented or whatever it is. So I like using auto-regulation and I do have a few tips for if you do have more symptoms places mm-hmm. as well. But auto-regulation our rating of perceived exertion is pretty well established in exercise physiology or literature, both for aerobic training and resistance training. And I love this because it accounts for if you need to change your intensity, your volume, your load, whatever it is, or your recovery is impacted by your hormones more significantly than others. Guess what? If you auto-regulate, it's going to indirectly have you pushing harder on days you feel good and pulling back on days you don't feel so great. And this is an amazing skill to have. And I think the reason that cycle thinking is so trendy is because women just ignore their bodies. They don't listen to them. They don't ask themselves how they feel. And they just shame themselves into feeling like they have to push, 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 burn calories, be thin, like do the max all the time or they're gonna gain weight in the whole world we're in. And again, that's not an invalid thing to feel because you've been fed that message since you were a kid. But I, I think the reason this is so trendy is because it's giving women permission to say, I don't feel great. I need to pull back. I need a day off. And I want to remind you that you have always had the permission to do that. There, you've always been allowed to do that. So recognize that that's an okay thing to do, but using auto-regulation allows you to tune into yourself and say like, how do I feel today? Like, and, and not judging yourself based off symptoms or how you feel that day, whether that's sleep, stress, hormones, whatever it is, and getting to the gym and just getting into it and saying, how does my body feel today? Because we've all had those days where we think we feel like shit and we get to the gym and we're like, oh my God, I had a great workout. I'm Everything was flying. The bar was moving fast. And then we have days where we like, think we're going to feel great. And we get to the gym and it's like, our is like rusting and squeaky and you need to take it in for a tune-up. And you're like, what the hell? I slept great. I ate well. Why is this terrible? So don't judge yourself until you get there. But using auto-regulation will help account for the fact that like, if you feel great, in that follicular phase because your estrogen's high or your hormones are low when you're in your period phase and you can push, then absolutely, by all means, push. But if you feel crummier in that mid to late luteal phase and you feel like things are harder for you, then guess what? You can lower your intensity or you can lower your volume or you can just use auto-regulation. So if you're working on an eight out of 10 effort, but that day your eight out of 10 effort is less, it's still your eight out of 10 effort. Like that's the point that I'm trying to make here. But if your eight out of 10 effort one week is 200 pounds and the next week is 175 pounds, guess what? You indirectly reduced your volume. There you go. Your body did it for you because that's what it could do. So I really like using RBE because it allows people to kind of make decisions for themselves and how their body works. But if you are someone who's having more impacts on your training or you do feel this, something that I also like to suggest as well is that if you are someone who does have more extreme mental symptoms, like let's consider pushing when you can push. And then those days that you don't feel great, can we either, like there's a couple different approaches we can take. If you're tracking and monitoring this and you know that you feel bad the few days going into your period and the first few days of your period, what if we front load the harder workouts that one week and then back load them the next week, right? What if we work around that window so you can give yourself that permission or move your rest days there or move your easier workouts there? Maybe you're moving your zone two cardio sessions during those days that you don't feel great that you know it reduces your symptoms, but it doesn't take as much out of you, right? Maybe you're doing your heavier, harder lifts before those onset of those symptoms and keeping your you know, your deadlift or your heavy squat day or whatever it is away from that window where you feel crummy. Like how can you adjust your week, right? So that it, it works with you and your body. And also recognizing that maybe you have to just take an extra rest day one week out of the month, every month. And guess what? That's okay. That's not cycle syncing. That is working with your body and using auto-regulation that isn't cycle syncing. That's not the same thing taking that extra rest day or maybe you swap out a high-intensity session for an easier session because that just feels better to you and keeps you moving, but you don't need to do Pilates or yoga. Unless that feels good, then by all means do that, but you don't need to replace what you're doing with that. And there's even some data coming out that one, women who had high PMDD symptoms who did high-intensity interval training every week of the month showed reduced exercise symptoms and even PMS symptoms going into their cycle. Exercise is good for you And then there's another paper that I covered recently that found that there was no association of hormone fluctuations with performance outcomes. It might not be your physiology, but mental perception and that stuff was directly related to outcomes and performance. And that's valid. If you feel like shit, you're gonna perform like shit. That doesn't mean that you need to like willpower yourself out of it, but your physiology might not be impacting your performance, but other things might. And learning to work with those things because those things show up in other areas of your life is an invaluable tool for getting you in the gym, Keeping you moving, learning to work with your body in seasons of life, not overdoing it, not pushing yourself, and then feeling like, oh, cycle syncing worked for me only because you either indirectly increased nutrient availability or you stopped burning your candle at both ends all the time. So, yeah. Sim- mic drop.
0: Sim- <laughs> simple, simple conclusions there. You know, focus on the basics, which is pretty much what I'm always talking about on this podcast, you know, sleep, nutrition these are the things that are important. We get, we get caught up, we get distracted by like hormones and we get distracted by gut health. And even with gut health, even with immune disease and autoimmune conditions, like focusing on the basics is typically where people need to start. Period. If
1: I, I need to have you on my podcast to talk about my gut healing journey, just because when I get, when I have to like put my 27 disclaimers of why I'm adjusting something in my diet, I'm always like, you don't need to do this, blah, blah, blah. blah. But, but like what we did for that year was the most unsexy thing that I've ever done. And I feel the best now a year later than I felt in years, right? Like it wasn't anything. Profound. A, a, <laughs> profound. And what a lot of people, and I'm, this, I'm sure you see this with all the other stuff too. A lot of people are just repackaging the basics and selling it to you at an overpriced price point and making it sound sexier than it is.
0: Oftentimes they're doing that, but oftentimes what they're doing is what's going to give short-term relief. Um, yes. in almost every case, they're just they're packaging. You have a digestive issue, you have an autoimmune condition. They're packaging one of the most restrictive elimination diets possible. That's going to, as you it's, it goes back to what you mentioned earlier with the cycle syncing. If you say, "Hey, I have a I have a program that's going to going to heal your gut," a hundred people are going to do it. If it's an extreme elimination diet, 20% of the people are gonna feel better in the first 28 days. You take those testimonials, you get hundred more people to do it, and you can keep like just confirming that this is a gut healing program, when in reality it's nutritionally deficient. It just doesn't, it's not appropriate for you. It's causing you to be scared of food in most cases where people start to now label all of these different foods as unhealthy. And it's, it's, it's along the same narrative as you were speaking, like with the cycle seeking stuff, I'm like, this, this applies throughout all of health where we take these, they're just trying to, to overcomplicate things. It's, it's adding a new layer of complication and making it seem like the things that we discuss, like the simple stuff in terms of like sleep and stress management, like that isn't as important and there's something else going on, but the reality is most people aren't auto-regulating, as you mentioned, and just having that awareness, like um, you're gonna get more out of tracking your calories and looking at the number of calories that you're eating every day and looking at your nutrient intake versus someone telling you when when you need to, you know, do less exercise. The reality is that um, the answers often lie in in examining our day-to-day behaviors. And that's yeah, what it comes and to <laughs> I don't every... think
1: consumers realize, like if you're listening to this, guys, like like even in marketing approaches for Instagram and social media, people push this all the time. Like you are more likely to click on something, watch something, interact with something, buy something if it fixes a pain point that you have. And you don't, you might not intentionally be doing this, but it could be really easy for someone like Adrienne or I to start like I could make a cycle thing in a second right and capitalize on all this and talk to pain points and be like science has left you out science has ignored you science has like left you behind but I'm here to like fix this issue for you and like if you pull back exercise like of course you're gonna feel better right but but it doesn't fix the actual cause of your issue just like the GI stuff like yeah, like when Nadrian worked with my brother, my brother was just removing everything from his diet. And because that made him feel better. And he did feel better, but it wasn't fixing what was the issue, right? Like, and he was afraid of all these things and doing all this stuff that was really crazy. And really, the reality of it was he just didn't assess what was going on. And I don't think the average person realizes either whether it's, you know, with hormones or gut or health, or just in general, how many people just go through lives like on this autopilot, not checking in with themselves, and their engine lights on, and they're trying to like apply these like band aids to things that like when they're really their engine is just like screaming, and they're just like, oh, I'll put a decal in the back of my car, and that will work, that will fix this, right? Because it looks good, but they're, they, they, you, I just don't think people realize like how much they're just eating haphazardly and sleeping irregularly and neglecting movement or dehydrated or over caffeinated or just like doing all these things that they are like, oh, no, I'm doing all this stuff that like I don't do that. And they don't take assessment of like, oh, shit, I'm actually doing all of these things that are directly causing my issues. But you just you don't you know, one, you're overloaded with information. I think that's very fair to say. But two, people are just like, well, I feel like shit. And they just like accept it. And they keep going through life doing all these things that are exacerbating, feeling like shit. And it's really unsexy, boring, unspecial work that isn't immediately gratifying, that really helps you feel good in whatever it is that you're working towards doing, whether that's cycle management or me not having my belly issues or your metabolic health or whatever it is like, Take a moment to just, you know, especially women, like just listen to your freaking body for once instead of just under fueling it, getting mad at it and then over pushing it and then being on the cycle where you feel like shit all the time because you're just working against yourself. And that's working against human physiology, not just even female physiology. Like take a second to pull back and say like, where am I just exacerbating my own issues and not taking care of myself and like being on the same team with my body rather than fighting it all the time.
0: Yeah, and we, I mean, we say this, and I don't want to make it sound like you or I are perfect, because I know that's not really the case, because even for myself, no. um, like, I started tracking my calories just out of curiosity, because I haven't done it in a really long time, and I'm also trying to get, like, trying to learn how to use a new app so I can teach my clients better, and... It's it just like it's like a slap in the face to me, even I'm like, this is so obvious of like the things that I wasn't doing correct and why, you know, I haven't been recovering as good from exercise and things like that. And it's just like, but I was telling myself that I was, you know, doing the right things, but it 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 really does like we we we're we're looking for the answers elsewhere when oftentimes it comes with like checking in with yourself and just evaluating your lifestyle and and the answer is most of the time like it's it's looking at what you're doing on a day-to-day basis as opposed to someone having this new cycle like you don't have the right test or you don't have the right cycle syncing program or you don't have the right gut healing program oh, this it's new really... next
1: thing will fix my problem finally we're really yeah. the solution and I, like as a consumer like my in like a weird injury thing of mine is flaring up out of nowhere and my immediate response is like What exercise do I need to add? Where do I need to do? What do I need to change? And really, it's just like, you need to take a few days off, adjust volume, let it calm down, and then slowly, gradually increase back the things that you know will address the weaknesses that you have. And that's really unsexy when I wish I could just do one thing and it would suddenly go away. But when you're in pain or you feel like shit, you're desperate to do whatever will fix that. And you're not wrong as a consumer, but we're really bad at humans of actually knowing what we did unless we have an awareness of it. Me and Andrew are no different than you. No different than you. I came to him doing things that blatantly made me feel bad (laughs) because I was in denial that it made me feel bad.
0: (laughs) That that you knew. And and this is this is an important thing. You know, sometimes it does require just working with someone and having an outside perspective for someone to just look at what you're doing and say, "Uh, you really just need to be sleeping more. And and it's so it's so funny. Like when I work with clients, like what I do in terms of recommendations is like so minimal, but it works because we're we're focusing on the low hanging fruit, the things that actually matter. And so rather than, you know, put someone on a restrictive diet and in a bunch of supplements, hey, let's first make sure that, or like in terms of cycle, rather than cycle syncing your hormone, hey, let's first make sure that you're eating enough protein because we see that you're getting, you know, 90 grams of protein, which is like about the average of a woman that I worked with in my lifetime, like 90 90 to 100 is like about the norm. Whereas, you know, if you're training and stuff, most women need more than that. And if you just look at those simple things, typically there's a couple of different things in there that are like, okay, I can up my protein a bit. I'm definitely not eating enough carbs or I'm eating enough carbs, but they're all at night because I drink coffee for breakfast and then train. And then I'm hungry at night. And then I have ice cream at night, you know. And, and so just moving that little, you know, moving those carbs to before your your training session and eating a little bit more protein. And that's that's the solution. It wasn't. And
1: I really encourage you all, especially like, I feel like I get this response a lot of the time on social media, they're like, I can't possibly sleep before my workouts in the morning. That's impossible. Trust me when I say. You can. But f- for a lot of things, a lot of people's immediate response is. I can't do that. That's impossible for me. Instead of saying, "Okay, well, how can I make this work for me in a way that is realistic? And there's like, you know, I I can use my nutrition changes when working with Adrian as an example here, only because that's the one real big thing that I've recently done in my life. But when I went to him, even I was like convinced that I couldn't eat breakfast in the morning and now I eat breakfast in the morning and I'm hungry in the morning and I digest it just fine and I don't live with a chronic bellyache. And it's like, wow, I'm consuming foods a year ago that I couldn't eat at all. But If I had that fixed mindset of like, well, I'll never do this. This will never work. I'll never be able to do this. That's impossible. Then I would be in the same place I was a year ago, right? And I think that instead of saying not immediately like, and with anything, it doesn't have to be eating or food, but like, instead of saying like, well, this wouldn't work for me. This is too many steps. This is too many things. Okay, well, where can I start smaller than what I think I need to start with? And how can I do that, right? Because like I even struggle with getting in enough protein, especially after I went through all the stuff I did with Adrian, like I openly... Struggle with it still. Like, I just finally got myself back up to consistently eating like 120 grams a day. In my low days, sometimes I get 90 to 100. And I'm like, you suck today, Alyssa, but we're going to do better tomorrow. Right. And I assess, well, where did I go wrong? And for me, I know that even though I'm eating in the morning, I do a bad job of getting enough protein in the morning because I, while I have worked with my appetite to improve it, protein is like really satiating and you kind of have to have an appetite to eat it. So it's not as easy to get in. So I'm like, okay, well, how, what ways can I? get this in in little ways so that I'm bumping up this amount that I'm getting in here so it's easier during my day. And I just take a second to assess that. And that's how I've worked backwards with all of these things. But you don't need to overhaul your whole life, right? Like that pyramid I talked about, you might, that might be a, a multi-year journey for you. And for so many females, I the best thing that I can recommend is to take a year off dieting and just train and focus on learning what it feels like to eat appropriately and f- fuel yourself and recover. And a lot of people have a hard time with that because I think that they think that's me telling them to go gain a bunch of weight, like eat out of control, like just go willy nilly. Like I'm like, no, eating enough doesn't always mean for some of you, you might need to be eating more. Some of you, you might not be need to eating more. Some of you eating enough might be a slight energy deficit or just staying at maintenance and working on meal patterns and composition. But it doesn't mean go gorge yourself for a year and become she Hulk. That means what can you like if you spend a year not chronically dieting or like haphazard exercising, chasing the tail of calorie burn and just actually trained with a purpose and intention while learning how to feed yourself in a way that let you recover, feel good, kept your blood sugar stable across the day, didn't leave you into candyland cravings at night because you restricted all day. What would that do for your training? And that is my favorite thing to do with and I see it with clients when they buy in on that, their lives change but it's really hard to overcome but that is like my best advice i can give you is spend a year muting and blocking the accounts to tell you all that other crap ignore them and don't try not to like do this yo-yo diet thing don't freak out if you gain a little bit of weight the goal is to gain muscle tissue right but just spend a year improving your relationship with food eating well and adequately and training with intention and and don't jump ship the second you don't feel like it's working for how you want it to work, and you will change everything for yourself moving forward. Like everything.
0: I I fully agree. I mean that that's what I do with most of the clients that I work with from a, who who aren't digestive clients. Like we're having them eat more, having them train. And the reality is, like when you say uh, spend a year not dieting, you mean spend a year not restricting, because what. Yes most women, most women that I've worked with, because, I mean, it's probably a self-selected group of, of, you know, women, but most of the women that I worked with, which is hundreds, have been basically, quote unquote, dieting, but they're not actually even in an energy deficit. They're just dieting all the time. Like they're eating too little at the appropriate, they're they're trying to eat too little all the time and then overeating on the weekends and nights. Uh, uh, and, And so it's never being appropriately fueled in that overeating is never nourishing calories. It's never high quality carbohydrates and, and high quality protein. It's, you know, junk food. And yes. so it and I think ends people up... are like,
1: they'll be like, well, I have weight to lose, so I can't do it. I'm like, well, what you're doing right now isn't working. Yeah. So even if your goal is to lose weight long-term, that's fine, absolutely. But guess what's gonna make that more successful? If you learn how to freaking feed yourself in a balanced pattern across the day and the week, right? Like you probably see this too. Like they probably end up indirectly losing weight because they did it, because they're eating actually Every less time. than they thought they were, feeling better, or they get to a place where they're ready to diet because they have the skills and tools to do it without it just being this like go in and just blindly strive yourself and grab things type approach that they do. In
0: in most people that I've worked with, um, after a period of time, they don't want to diet. They want to actually gain more. <laughs> like you know, at first they're like, I want to, you know, I, but I want to lose weight and I don't want to eat more and I'm scared to eat, you know, this amount of calories. And then once they start building muscle, they're like, oh, this is great. I, my body composition is improving. I feel more energetic. I'm stronger. I like the way I feel and look like let's keep doing this. And it's it's actually tends to be the opposite. And as you mentioned, it does set you, set you up to improve your body composition and lose fat later on. But the reality is that the vast majority, vast majority of women who have been focused on exercise or nutrition have been restricting and not training in a way that's going to build muscle. And, and if they muscle are weightlifting. The
1: solution to like most people's problems, exactly. and that's and that's why I push back on the cyclical thing because for so many of you, if that type of thing seems enticing or it seems like it's working. A lot of the women promoting it were lean who were restricting their energy intake and over-exercising. So they just indirectly increased their energy availability by either decreasing intensity or they changed their diet while doing it. Because if you pull back exercise, you do have new- more nutrition available to you. You're not in as much of a state. But that's the same why we as have- eating more. It's the same as eating more. It's just an indirect way of doing it. Or two is that they just started like resistance training. like they Because it wasn't their-
0: cool 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, they just like started resistance training. And even if they're not doing it in the most balanced way, like they weren't really doing it before at all. So like, yes, it's going to work if you add, like even if you are resistance trained, like the great thing about exercise is that even if you like kind of do it unideally, it still kind of works to an extent, like you'll reach a plateau or a point where it doesn't work. But like, this is why like the rise of fitspo years ago, whereas all these lean women who were skinny fat who started resistance training and eating a little bit more protein and they're like their bodies were like incredible and everyone was worshiping them but they were doing haphazard random jumping exercises from thing to thing and i'm like well yeah if you go from doing nothing to doing a bunch of random shit you are gonna improve your body composition because your body's just gonna respond to that tension no matter what it looks like eventually you're gonna have to do something a little bit more progressive and consistent but that's the nice thing is that like if you just load your body, magic happens if you just do it in the short term in it, the short term and eat enough in responds to it, right? like it, it it works. So understanding why these things work or feel good it, it's important because it helps you understand why people are saying it's working, but okay, what's the actual reasons it's working and how can we approach that? But for most, the reason I hate it is because for most people, women are already statistically further below the exercise guidelines than men to begin with. And this is just perpetrating this idea that you should be like almost inactive and below the exercise guidelines for like one to two weeks of the month. Like, and not all exercise guidance on this is saying this, but a lot of it is. A lot of it is like no intention. Gentle movement,
0: yoga. Gentle
1: movement. And it ignores the role that exercise plays on hormonal regulation and health. And again, hormones aren't just estrogen and progesterone, they are also your metabolic state of your body people forget that and those things impact things right and that exercise is really important for metabolic health and balancing those hormones in your body like that's also a piece of this that i think people forget and they make people terrified to do things that are health promoting because they're like well you're gonna ruin your hormones and it's gonna make you fat and i'm like in no point in time has exercise ever made anyone fat
0: <laughs> e- exercise hard, but eat enough I think this is where this is where yeah. the, the messaging comes from. It's like they're telling you to pull back on the exercise because you're not eating enough. The reality is you just you can stick with the exercise. Just make sure you're feel, feeling your body appropriately for that exercise. And you don't have to necessarily pull back and you can you continue will to feel.
1: I don't think re- women realize how much better they feel when they're, one, not eating that haphazard way that you're doing, or they are eating more regularly and they think they're eating enough and they're not. And I have friends and clients who are like, my HRV is always down. My recovery is always low. My sleep is impacted. I'm not recovering. I, cause I'm big, if you guys don't know this, I'm big on like concurrent hybrid training, running and lifting. And people have a hard time balancing it. And then guess what? They are under eating carbohydrates or their protein intake isn't adequate. One of, it's usually one or both. And that drives up calories. And I'm like, usually again, people are usually eating enough fats. Maybe not everyone, but most people are but they're they're not eating. And I, I'm, I'll i be like, increase your carbohydrate intake. They'll be like, oh my God, my HRV's up, my recovery's up, my sleep's improved, my performance is improved. And I'm like, it's really that simple. Like you, you will feel, you feel so much better when your glycogen stores aren't chronically depleted.
0: That's, it, that's exactly it. So we've been on for quite a while. We need I to- I know, I'm sorry. I know we can
1: ramble for forever. And I need and to- You and I get in these, uh,
0: in these, yeah, get on these rants. So yeah, let the listeners know where to find you. And if you like the information that was shared here, list probably puts out more information than anyone in the exercise physiology space throughout YouTube and Instagram. So I highly recommend checking her out. So where where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so I am kind of a little bit of everywhere. So you can find me predominantly hanging out on Instagram, Doclist Fitness, D-O-C-L-Y-S-S. My name is Alyssa. List is short for that. And then just fitness. Um, and then Doc List fitness on YouTube, doclessfitness.com. Um, My podcast is called The Messy Middle Podcast. Really, if you go to Instagram and you go to my bio link, you'll kind of find everything there. My website links to everything. And I have training programs. Most of my clientele is women, but we focus a lot on resistance training progressively and combining that with adequate cardiovascular training, whether that's running or race training or just general cardiovascular fitness for health and well-being. I'm a big proponent of having programs that do both. So I have a lot of that there. And then my programs page is at the List Method on Instagram. And we have good information there too as well. But yeah, if you're, I mean, I have the female fizz stuff. If I've been on a ton of other podcasts you can dive in and listen to that are all linked on my website, but also I have a few podcasts and videos myself I've put out. And then I just rant on Instagram about it all of the time, so.
0: Yeah, definitely. So go check her out. If you like learning about this topic, there's a never ending amount of information and it's all high quality evidence-based. It's gonna be nuanced. It's its, it's not gonna be as sexy as some of the other stuff out there but it's going to be the stuff you actually need to learn so thank you thank you for coming on again and i hope you have a great day
1: thank you so much